Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to today's Federalist Society virtual event. This afternoon, February 28th, 2023, we are discussing America's expanding semiconductor export controls. My name is Jack Apizi, and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for any questions that you might have. If you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, I will introduce our moderator for today. That is Trevor Jones. Trevor is a student at Harvard Law School and is the student liaison for our International and National Security Practice Group Executive Committee. Uh, Trevor, with that, the floor is yours. Perfect. Well, thank you, Jack, for the introduction and welcome to everyone joining us today. I think we're going to be in for a good discussion about these new semiconductor export controls. And, you know, there's honestly no better people to talk about this than our two panelists today. So let me give them a brief introduction and then I'm going to get into some of Q&A I've prepared. But if you have any questions, feel free to send them in. We'll see them. I'll either ask them when they're relevant. And I've reserved some time at the end for getting into all the Q&A questions that people do ask. So our first panelist is Nazak Nakaktar. Nazak is a partner at Wiley Rain, where she's the chair of their national security practice and the co-chair of their CFIUS practice. And prior to joining Wiley, she was uh, the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Industry and Analysis at the International Trade Administration and the Acting Undersecretary of Commerce for the Bureau of Industry and Security. So a lot. <laughs> but uh, so she, she handled export control policy and is one of the leading experts on this field. And uh, our other panelist is Mr. Thomas Kruger, who is a senior policy advisor at Aiken Gump, uh, where he handles export control policy, amongst other things. And prior to joining Aiken, he was an official at the White House from 2020 to 2022 in both the Trump and Biden administrations on the National Security Council, where he was one of the leads, lead officials there organizing the interagency export control policy. And prior to that, he had been in a similar capacity at the State Department. So with those introductions established, I would like to get into a little bit of the details about our export control regime towards semiconductors. So Nazak, the first question's for you. You were there in the Trump administration. You know, as we're waking up to this threat posed by China, posed by China's military, and also the strategic technology sector that supports it. So could you outline for us some of the steps that you helped us take to combat China's strategic development and the development of their technology sector as it relates to export controls, semiconductors, but more broadly as well. Yeah, thank you. And, and really good to, to be with you and uh, and my dear friend, uh, Thomas Kerger as well, who we collaborated quite a bit with. It's a really important question because it kind of takes us through why are we here now? So we were dealing with literally, and I will tell you this from having been on the front lines of the US-China economic battle, for 20 plus years is that we were witnessing this consistent sort of hollowing out of our industries and hollowing out of our industries um, enabled by tech transfer and then China throwing not only its enormous workforce and enormous capacity, but enormous subsidies at stealing our technology and then capitalizing on it through its resources in many respects, better ways than we are able to. And then just racing ahead of us 
with the ultimate goal that the, the, the idea isn't for China to kind of always compete with us. It's basically to hold our supply chains hostage, hold technology that they acquire and not share it with the rest of the world or share it under the terms and conditions that China wanted. So it really started the last administration's efforts. It really started with this fundamental understanding that we were trying to make sure that everybody else kind of good got. So we started becoming more uh, aggressive with policies, including export controls. Now, by the time I, I went to the Bureau of Industry and Security, we still had more Russian entities on the entity list. Now, for those who don't know, the entity list is essentially in layman's terms, a U.S. government blacklist, but it essentially regulates exports to these foreign entities that are deemed to be problematic in terms of either U.S. national security interests or foreign policy interests. So that was the state of affairs sort of in late 2018. Um, and so by 2019, we made an effort to change that trend. China was becoming the real technology acquisition threat. So we needed to make sure that we got ahead of that problem. So we started designating more Chinese entities on the entity list. Uh, a PLA um, a company, PLA and a company and its affiliate, Haigon and Sugan, we put them on the entity list because their acquisition of critical microprocessor technologies that were enabling China's weapons of mass destruction, simulation capabilities, and their hypersonics capabilities. And remember, because of China's sort of putting resources in, China st stole and misappropriated and acquired because we voluntarily gave them a lot of the technology that enabled them to race against the United States two years ahead of the United States in hypersonic capabilities. So we needed to do that. Um, we, for the first time in history, took the effort in terms of moving entities or moving companies on the entity list, further enabling on the forced labor atrocities in China. We started uh, developing new rules in terms of military and users, military intelligence and users to better clamp down on exports that go to those entities. And of course, the Huawei entity list, right? It was a big punch to, to other than ZTE, it was a sort of second biggest punch to a major, major uh, Chinese company that controls much of the global trade and revenue stream in telecom. And because of the uh, company's uh, violation of the U.S. financial sanctions against Iran, we had a couple of choices, impose secondary sanctions or put them on the entity list. And because of their size and scale and you know potential impact to the U.S. economy and the economy of our allies, we put them on the entity list. And which really started restricting exports to them. And what was really remarkable and fascinating was that in the early days of us putting Huawei on the entity list, we reached out to allies. We were always reaching out to allies. Um, contrary to how the, the press depicts it, we were constantly working with allies and sharing information to make sure that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. And with Huawei, our allies' initial reactions were either we can manage the risk or we know Huawei is a problem, but they're so big and China's so big that we're kind of afraid of doing anything. And what happened was with us moving ahead first, other countries started kind of going back and saying, wait a second, can we really manage this risk? If the United States couldn't manage it, can we really manage it? 
And then they started retreating from Huawei. They didn't have to do it the exact same way we did it, but they started retreating from Huawei through their own regulations, from their own policies. And so now you see the sort of international community coming to a realization that there are threats with doing business with China. There are surveillance capabilities, all of these things that are kind of being embedded in the technologies that they've developed through the um, through the acquisition of our technology. And maybe we need to be less reliant on that. And so, but all of that really began with this one understanding of the threat that China poses and two, this problem of we're giving too much technology to China and allowing them to, to grow too much. And remember, if we give it to them, they're going to run faster in many instances because of the resources they're putting in and we really need to scale back. But with that, I'll... Uh, Handed back over to you. Perfect. Thank you. Now, I do want to get into the Biden administration regulations, Thomas. But first, you were there at the end of the Trump administration. You saw a lot of these things going on. You saw the transition. Anything you want to add or? Yeah, I mean, just to compliment what Nazar has said, and, and just thank you for having me on today, of course. Um, this is really great. I love discussing export controls and broad policies around export controls. It's also interesting, like I'm the non-attorney that always gets invited to all the attorney groups. So I just, uh, just so it's, so I feel like there's a lot of uh, scrutiny when I talk to really smart people about these issues. So, um, so just want to like, kind of just step back just a little bit and it really just complimenting what, what Nazak just said. I was, we became really aware at the staff level of the China threat, kind of in the late Obama administration. Nazak had mentioned ZTE and there was already growing concern about sort of this and questioning, quite frankly, the sort of view I think that had kind of been around from the, uh, quite frankly, for a very long time, that somehow economic liberalization in the PRC would lead to political change. And, and so therefore export controls seem to be in, from a policy perspective, the idea was let's, let's bring um, China and their economy closer to the West. And therefore there was a, uh, there was always suspicion ever since obviously from um, Tiananmen Square about China authoritarianism, but there was still this general open sense of, of like, we really only are going to deny those exports that really can make a material contribution to military uses and end users. So that, so, so the, the standard by which to deny dual use exports and dual use items, um, that, that was heavily scrutinized against a different policy backdrop. Late Obama administration, um, going into the Trump administration, there became more concern that this sort of idea that somehow China, like the, the Chinese Communist Party was going to uh, uh, reform itself, especially after she um, took leadership, it became less, it became more apparent that this was, this was not going to happen. And we became, there was much more concern. Um, what, what happened to the Trump administration, though, was uh, just as Nazak explained, it was just more tension put to this issue. And it was very much like, it was almost an awakening, I should say, with it, with it, with like the Belt and Road Initiative that became more prominent in terms of like the considerations, as well as this new concept called Milsid Fusion, that which is a which is a program by the Chinese Communist Party uh, that became really like a way of taking U.S. advanced technology and integrating it into its military systems. Uh, this really challenged the export control. Um, sort of system, which was predicated on very narrow non-proliferation sort of ideas that basically uh, export controls is used to stop certain technologies from uh, going into weapons of mass destruction or advanced convention of conventional arms. So this idea that it was starting to broaden out 
to actually being used, like for, for example, to uh, confront or prohibit U.S. technology going to Xinjiang um, and the, the human rights atrocities that were happening there was kind of using export controls in different ways and broadening out the use of export controls to, uh, to address different sort of threats. And the, the Trump administration was very quick to recognize this and, and jump into it. And, and export controls prior really to the Trump administration was because it was so focused on non-proliferation it was not it was almost like a second tier tool i mean the big tool was always sanctions like treasury had the big tool and then those treasury sanctions and the military and then export controls was kind of sitting over here it was used very carefully so um the trump administration really really kind of opened up and broadened the political willingness to use export controls for more than just these no narrow um, um non-proliferation uh, uses Moving on into the Biden administration, the Biden administration came in and pretty, in a lot of ways, just kind of picked up uh, where the Trump administration left off. Um, they did come in uh, with, with some, some differences. And, and one thing that they did, and I think this was exemplified, I think, especially as we discuss uh, semiconductors, is they, they worked really hard to put together a, a very um, cohesive policy around what they were trying to do. Um, in a lot of ways, it wasn't that the Trump administration did it. It's just that there was almost a sense of urgency and they were like trying to stop, like like think about a ship, a, a ship that was going, I won't say sinking, but things were going, they were like very quickly trying to like fix things that were kind of broken very quickly. And it seemed very haphazard, though there wasn't, a, there was a, there was an agenda, uh, it appeared haphazard, but there was an agenda behind it. This administration kind of took the time and kind of like, created a comprehensive policy and they stated it publicly. And I think we can go back to Jake Sullivan's 20, um, just last year in September, um, he gave a speech on identifying three, what he called force multiplying technologies. The first was advanced compute, which include AI, quantum, advanced semiconductor manufacturing, bio, and then an interesting area is clean energy technologies. And so, and he also stated at the time that the administration was going to freeze um, semiconductor manufacturing, uh, Chinese indigenous semiconductor fan manufacturing at a particular level, instead of the old way of thinking that we were going to stay just so many generations ahead, which had been sort of the, 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 the idea, as long as the US stayed ahead a couple of generations, it didn't really matter. Um, if the PRC lagged behind us in, in, in some sort of way. So these are some of the big, that was a big shift, that speech kind of like laid out the premise for what you're asking is about these October, the October 7th rule. And, and the way I like to think about like the October 7th rule, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of legal analysis and, you know, to plug Aiken, there's a great final alert, you can kind of read through it. But, but for the layman, I think it's a lot easier to kind of work backwards. And I am going to kind of like building on what Nazak said about identifying a threat. So let's just begin like what kind of threat were they trying to address with the October 7th rule? And I think the first thing you do is you kind of look at like um, the threat as it laid down the preamble is the use of advanced semiconductors for um, enabling WMD type delivery systems. And so you might ask yourself what could possibly a chip be used to to do that like how does that apply well when you think about like some of the modeling and some of the advanced computer supercomputers um that is done you think in terms of like okay this requires high-end chips the other thing 
that it, they has a, it has a line in the preamble of addressing human rights. And we all now at this point, due to a lot of the work that has been done in Chinese surveillance, understand that really one of the biggest threats out there in terms of human, of human rights is Chinese-enabled um, advanced, AI-enabled Chinese surveillance technologies. And so basically from there, we kind of can think through like, okay, well, how do we address that threat to ensure from an indigenous perspective that we're able to cut off those sort of chips from going to that? Well, you have to kind of look at the production equipment. So you think about the production equipment, it says, okay, what kind of tools are necessary in order to um, that make these sort of, and what kind of parameters are required that, that we really care about? So what the administration did is they laid out three technical parameters that they felt were the, the key areas on the semiconductor um, in, in semiconductor tooling. And they said 14 nanometer envelope for logic, 120 layer NAND for memory and DRAM at 18 nanometers below. So they said, okay, here are the parameters. So what kind of tools are used to make that? And so they started, so the rule kind of identifies certain kind of tools that are specially made to, to, to kind of um, focus on those sort of higher level chipsets. And also they said, okay, but, but then what other, how do we capture any other things and other tools to actually make those chips. Well, then they added this sort of this catch-all control, which for if you don't know if this tool is actually going to a facility and you're not, you don't know what kind of um, um, chip that they're making, then you have to come in for a license, and therefore that kind of like imposes licensing requirements. It's broad catch-all across anything that could fit almost anything that could that could fit into that they could address that. Then it went in even further and says, well, how about US person expertise that might be helping with identifying or supporting these sort of um, covered technologies for, for things that are not even subject to the expert administration regulation. Then they suddenly impose what they novel, and this is a novel thing that the Biden administration did was this novel broadened US person control. So therefore they capture the, the ecosystem. Well, if you read the preamble of the rule, it also has a line in terms of human rights. And here that's where we kind of look over into the AI chip area, even though those AI chips also can be used for perhaps maybe weapons manufacturing and modeling and so forth. Also, they also goes, goes after sort of this, um, the, this, the, the, the surveillance issue. And so, you know, they impose, building on what they did with the Russia sanctions and the export control measures. And prior to that, the Huawei foreign produced direct product rule, they had the foreign direct product rule um, for the, the AI chips. And then they added foreign produced product rule targeting the semi, the supercomputer companies that are already on the entity list because for the same reason. So, I mean, and this is just a very high level kind of explaining what this rule did, but I think the key takeaway here is this, the administration was very, very careful not to touch legacy semiconductors. And they were, it was, it was supposed to be by design, very narrowly focused. And it was focused within the framework of WMB sort of delivery systems and those sort of applications, if you will, as, as the threat that they were, that they were working to mitigate. And, that was critical because the that other multi, uh, other countries, their export controls um, systems are predicated in part on the, their their traditional nonproliferation. They're traditionally set up to actually impose controls on things that can enable 
um, WMD delivery systems and, and and advanced conventional weapons. So in a lot of ways, I think the preamble of the rule um, was sort of a signal, if you will, to partners and allies that we are not doing this for broad, quote unquote, economic security reasons. We are keeping this really, really focused. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, so it's kind of like there's four buckets. You know, one is there's this expansion of the foreign direct product Huawei style role to certain entities. The second is the U.S. person's control. And then you have for the super high tech American manufacturing equipment and software that can be used only to produce these leading edge chips. That's purely banned. Correct. Um, they're restricted. That they're restricted. I, don't, I don't like to. I don't like to word banned. There's their presumption of denials and their presumptions of denials. So it's up to the iteration to make a decision whether or not something gets approved or not. But then you have this fourth category, which is like the node agnostic equipment and software that can be used at the high end, or it could be used to make these leg legacy semiconductor chips. And what determines whether you get a license to export those to China is the end use. I guess that's that's where I want to ask you something, Nizak or Thomas. Feel free to jump in as well. How do you actually, in a country like China, with an opaque political system, we have limited intelligence capabilities to get in and say, you know, what is this factory actually producing? And on top of that, we don't know if maybe we're sending equipment to a factory that's not producing high-end chips, but then they sell it to one that is. How, you know, for Nizak as an attorney advising company, American companies in this space, how are you screening for this? What do companies need to look for? when they're trying to comply with these end use restrictions. Yeah, so um, so let me sort of step back here and, and make sure that um, we're all maybe kind of on the same page in terms of the rules before going into the end use. So I, I hugely commend the Biden administration for, you know, we, we, we teed up sort of the China thing in, in many important respects. Um, now the world is kind of on this pretty much the same page that China's a problem, which kind of put lay out the front groundwork for the Biden administration. But I also do want to say coming from it as, you know, dealing with China for 20 years, dealing with circumvention from China for 20 years, which Trevor kind of goes to your question, but I want to preface it. You know, if you promulgate rules that allow China to get past the more stringent license screening mechanisms by incorporating outside China, or if machines that make the lower NAND, the more uh, leading edge chips are the same machines that make the more advanced or mature chips, or maybe you just need to reconfigure the machines just a bit. And so their use could go to the prohibited, right? Or, or the highly restricted end uses. Or if you are restricting, highly restricting um, through license reviews, um, you know, items uh, produced abroad from U.S. technology to the 28, um, you know, the October 7th rules listed 28 Chinese companies that have a presumption of denial if, if things go to them, uh, foreign direct pro uh, produced items go to them, but they can go to all the other companies on the entity list, right? Even though the U.S. laws prohibit the re-exports of items, you're going into an opaque country with, there's just no rule of law, but the thousands and thousands of licenses that we're approving in China, there's literally no capacity, not of RBIS, not of anybody other BIS equivalent in the world to conduct adequate end use checks in a country where um, circumvention uh, is so prevalent. 
Right. And so what I don't love about the rules is that they still have room for circumvention, which is what China does. If you do not do things that are very black and white, you will be assured that there's circumvention opportunities and entities have been built to trade with China. These companies have been developed scale to export to China. And so they're going to say, what do you mean I can't export to China anymore? I have built, I have invested billions of dollars in capacity export to China. Well, they're going to look at the rules. They're going to work with their lawyers and they're going to figure out where the rules don't stretch and then work with their Chinese suppliers. Okay, well, maybe if you reincorporate here or whatever, we can kind of get around the rules. And now you're legally getting around. Right. And so I just want to be clear about that. The other one I think I really want to be clear about is that Look, you've got to understand industry to regulate industry. And if you think about um, the, any industry in terms of a triangle where the com- commodity is at the bottom rung, rung and then the higher tech stuff goes at the very top. Well, you know, we're not going to be able to stay generations ahead of China if we're restricting them to have access to the the high generation stuff, because where does the revenue come from to invest in next gen from commodity? And if you give up the commodity of China, and they already have it, granted, uh, but they are engaging in overcapacity on the advanced chips, on the leading edge chips. And if they capture the global market there, which is 99.5% of the global market, 99.5. I will repeat that one more time. 99.5 of the global IC market is the advanced and the, and the mature legacy. And if you control that revenue stream, guess what? You have the revenue stream to invest in next-gen technology. So, And then we don't have the revenue stream to invest in next-gen technology. That is the fundam- another part of the fundamental problem in addition to circumvention with the new rules. So I, so I think as much as I respect Jake Sullivan and everybody in the administration, being from purist, I'm going to call anything out that I think is incomplete. So I think this is incomplete. Now, going to your question, um, you know, how do you advise clients? So one, I personally am a fan of interoperability with allies. And I really don't like dangerous things to fall into the hands of dangerous countries. So, you know, if something is uh, not prohibited and it's permissible, right? Through licensing and I don't have a presumption of denial or anything like that. I'm actually going to look to see what this technology is capable of. And I could very much get assurances. My clients could get uh, a lot of assurances from the Chinese entity that's receiving it saying, I am only going to use it for X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, what's the technology that, that we're exporting capable of doing regardless of what the attestation says? And if it's capable of doing more, then the advice to clients is as follows. You will be compliant. You're going to request a license. The government may grant grant the license. But if that item that you're exporting, one, is enables dangerous capabilities, how do you as a company feel about that just in terms of like company values and ethics? And second, how do you feel about it if your technology goes into things that are happening in the third country that are oppressing people that are being now shipped to uh, Ukraine, uh, to Russia to, to enable or continue the, uh, the, the, the aggression that's happening in, in Ukraine? Or how would you feel if your technology was used by the PLA or used by companies that are uh, perpetuating the forced labor, uh, the the genocide atrocities. So those are the questions that we pose to clients saying, look, this is what's permissible. This is what's really highly regulated. 
And also because of your technology, it's capable of doing X, Y, and Z. Here are the enormous amount of reputational risks. And even if it's going outside of China to a third country, what is that country's level, you know, regulatory system? What's the U.S.'s relationship with that country? And what's the corruption level in that country so that they can make the best informed decision? Yeah, just to maybe build a little bit on what Ms. Ock said, I think what's interesting about this rule is that it's not good enough that it used to be this thing that goes when you're exporting a thingy, how does that thingy actually enable the military? Now you're now now applicants have to think about how does my thingy go into a thingy that goes into a thingy that thing goes into a thingy to go enable this uh the 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 the, the problem of concern. And that puts a lot of burden just what I've what I've noticed in my observation, it seems like that puts a lot of uh, burden on on companies in order to do that level of due diligence. And does just mention this idea of like, you know, at what point did did, did we do do companies have to understand, let's say, the Malaysian export control system or the Turkish export control system to be to do do those sort of value judgments in terms of reputational risk? I mean, it's yeah, I think it puts a lot of burden on companies to actually be able to. Um, not only comply with the rule, but to kind of stay out of some of the stay out of hot water with some of the reputational risk issues that that Nazak is uh, is is advising clients on as well. So this, but we, it kind of go, it kind of shows now kind of where we come on export controls, right? From the early, the late the Obama administration, where the vast majority of it was, you know, export control reform getting stuff off the United States munitions list, which is our high, high level munitions items, moving into the commerce control list, the lower level stuff too. Now we're talking about the thing that goes into the thing that goes into the thing that goes into the thing is controlled because of, you have to find out where that thing is ultimately going or, and you are, at least you have to do your best. You have to do your best to figure that out. Um, so this, this has also, this has created, I think, a, a change in supply chains. Um, it's also caused, I think, a psychological impact. I think it, it's not so much just the legal issues. It's just the psychological impact that U.S. companies have. Um, and also companies overseas um, have in terms of our export control system. And also the rules and the way these rules have been rolled out, it's kind of also introduced unpredictability into the system. I mean, I mean, yes, we did this. And I say we, like in the Trump administration, got out of normal rulemaking in a lot of ways to address some of these threats. And but you know, that that is a legacy that's kind of carried on where we're not going through regular rulemaking. And so um, there's not like like some of these rules that came out, arguably you can make the argument could have gone out with our notice and comment uh, did not have to come out the way they did um, and still meet the same effect. I mean, on certain issues. So I think there is a diligence issue. There's a, there's, there's challenges for us companies in terms of com compliance um, to these rules. Yeah. And, you know, I want to I want to also mention, you know, a couple of months ago, there was an international agreement announced between Japan, the United States and the Netherlands in regard to semiconductor export controls. And we don't know the exact details of the deal yet. That's to be determined, to be announced. But I guess my question for both of you is what would a deal with our allies who also produce this kind of equipment and this kind of software? What would our allies need to agree to do? to solve the risk of backfilling or the risk that basically the Chinese are just going to get this technology from someone else. I think this kind of also dovetails the answer kind of dovetails with um, one of the 
actually both of the, the audience questions, which is, you know, Japan and the Netherlands are really going to be just kind of be looking at, and they're going to have very different concerns. I think Japan's going to be looking at it as like China's a big neighbor. And, you know, I am very vulnerable in terms of any sort of aggressive action if, if China decides to retaliate against me, right? We saw what happened in critical minerals. Japan is not of the size and scale that the United States is that it can make everything it needs, right? It relies on international partners. So for Japan, the calculus is like China's there. I re rely on upstream materials for China, right? The things that go into making semiconductors, the gallium, the germanium, you know, outside Ukraine, the neon gas. So if I join the United States in these times of, in these types of uh, restrictions, not only do I not have access to China's supply chains, but I am also, there could be a blockade. There could be something that can actually prohibit me from get, getting goods, right? That's, those are Japan's concerns. I think the Dutch, their concern is like, look, our company, our ASML that makes the ultraviolet lithography tools that make those very, very small chips, those low no chips, They've invested literally billions of dollars over 20 years to develop this technology. And, you know, the rest of the world isn't gobbling it up in terms of the speed that China does. And we've got to make a return on our investment. So what do you mean we can't sell this stuff to China? Now, they're having they have been restricting exports to China because we've been asking them to. Um, they did recently announce that the Chinese had stolen a lot of their um, technology. They hired about 200, hired about 200 uh, Chinese last year. So they're kind of going through these dynamics where they're not sold one way or another. They're kind of soul searching. And so it's really for these for these countries that have vulnerabilities in very different ways. I think what's ultimately going to happen is that they're going to generate rules that feel in spirit like what the U.S. rules are, but they're going to be very similar to the U.S. rules. They're going to have loopholes, deliberate loopholes that allow the business transactions with China to continue, maybe regulated to some very minimal extent, but the business transactions to continue because there are these enormous other problems that they really haven't figured out yet. And I should also mention that, you know, there's been um, a lot of chatter in the, uh, the semiconductor community about some of these companies abroad um, that have choke point technologies, maybe thinking about designing out U.S. technologies so that it would be if any exports to China would come from their own government, but wouldn't be because of our the reach of our export controls, the reach of our jurisdiction in terms of containing U.S. content. So at the end of the day, great talking point. I really doubt that they're going to do anything more significant than what we did. I doubt that they're going to walk and lockstep with what they did, because I think for them, the vulnerabilities are too great. And we've really got to help them solve those vulnerabilities in terms of if I can't, Japan, if I can't have access to supply chains that I need, if China retaliates, U.S., how are you going to help me resolve those so I can actually ultimately walk in lockstep with you? Because Japan, first and foremost, is right there where we are in terms of understanding the Chinese threats, but they don't have the kind of flexibility that we do. So we should partner with them a little bit more and help them a little bit more to implement rules in the way that we deem appropriate that protect both of our national security interests or all of our national security interests. Yeah, I just maybe uh, just build a little bit and build on what Nazak said. Um, 
I agree there. I don't think the, that um, the Japanese and the Dutch are going to come to the same level of restrictions um, as the U.S. did, particularly in the, in the areas of like the U.S. person control. I'd be very surprised to see a Dutch person control or a Japanese person control. Um, not that it won't happen, but I'd be surprised to see it. I'd also be very surprised to see broad um, catch-all controls, the same kind of controls that that has been historically used for like weapons of mass destruction um, to be a that be imposed on the, uh, the, 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 these ecosystems. Um, I do think that even the Dutch, um, there, and it's a lot of European countries perhaps, um, are, are also vulnerable to Chinese influence and Chinese investment in other areas. And so there is this, this question, there's sensitivity about retaliation. Um, and I think that, um, the U S the, the U S is, is the, the, the Biden administration is mindful of a lot of these considerations as well. I think, the one thing, though, that um, that we sometimes do is we think that other countries can do the same things that we can do in our legis in our export control system. We've got massive, quote unquote, extraterritorial sort of reach in our export control system that other countries um, have are just now beginning to kind of explore. I mean, things as simple as like control over simple re-exports of of certain goods that are not not weapons, for instance, is it could be could be something that a lot of our partners and allies um, we may be asked we and we should be asking them to to do that so we would not have to impose some of our um, our foreign direct product rule over or lower the or, or use our de minimis thresholds in order to control um, though our partners and allies items. So I mean there there's I think there's structural differences and even if we do agree on like the kind of technical items that need to be controlled, I think the question is, well, okay, then how are you controlling them? Um, and so I, I think this raises a whole different level of discussion amongst a lot of regulatory nerds on export controls and, and very, very confusing spaces with a lot of different language and, and just the, the differences of just how the systems and how the, the the diet works versus like the parliament works and how rulemaking is done. It gets into a into a really weedy conversation. And with that comes time. And, you know, as you start thinking about how fast our allies and partners can actually impose these controls, um, we can look back at the Russia sanctions uh, that were imposed. That was, you know, a lot of the Europeans that I spoke to um, at the time, they saw the invasion of, of Russia into Ukraine as an existential threat to Europe. And therefore, there was a different kind of level of political will to move in that direction. The question that I have is, do they see the threat coming from the PRC? And I'm not just talking about the Dutch and the Japanese. I'm just talking about generally speaking, do our partners and allies see the same threat from come the PRC that that we do? And if not, are we doing enough to actually articulate that threat clearly um, with our partners and allies um, in order for them to actually develop the, the, that kind of uh, uh, will, if you will, if you say to actually impose um, light controls or or or, or develop mechanisms vis-a-vis um, -vis the People's Republic of China. So that I think is something that is a challenge for the administration or for any administration for that matter um, to be able to, uh, to 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 undertake. Yeah, Trevor, you're on mute. 
Thank you. All right. So at this point, I want to ask answer, well, rather ask some audience questions to you guys. I have one last question I want to ask, but everyone out there in the audience, feel free to send in more questions because we're going to do some Q&A now. But my, my last question is, so we've outlined you know, what these regulations are. We've outlined what the potential contours of an international deal would have to look like if it could even work, which is questionable. And there's been a lot of agreement between you two on a lot of things, but I'm going to ask a question where maybe there might be some friendly disagreement, which is how do you think the Biden administration's semiconductor export control is going? Is Where is it going right? Where is it going wrong? And where does it need to go farther and how much farther? I can, I can try to take that um, first. So um, again, I, I want to underscore the respect for the Biden administration. Um, they, they really are in, in many ways picking up where we left off, meaning they, they're seeing the threat and they, they see that it's their responsibility to continue addressing these threats. But I do have to say like that we have to cut off these exports of dangerous capabilities to China. Um, any exports to China, like let's make no mistake, I, this is coming from an expert having been on the front lines of China for 20 plus years. Any exports of technology to China means China wins. We can't have it both ways. You can't have the revenue stream and give up the technology to China because China is a non-market economy. It will, it has, the, the, the government determines the prices of raw materials, land, labor, electricity, everything. So they're always going to underprice you. So you export to them. They figure out how to do it. They underprice you. And they wipe you out from the from the competitive landscape, and because and China can do this rest assured because of its massive size, scale, and resources. And so, I would like any administration who goes in next to say you can't to understand that you can't have it both ways. You can't make everybody happy if you're going to be serious about curbing China's technological growth that, as Thomas mentioned, going straight to the PLA um, with through the civil fusion strategy. And they are, they, they expressly say that we should also listen to exactly what China is saying, whereas it is building a military uh, capabilities to destroy us and our allies. So when you think of it in that context, does it make sense to export any critical um, technologies to China? So what I say is for China and countries of concern, you do away with the ex the entity list, you do away with the CC, you know, all of that stuff, and you really just start prohibiting exports of critical items to them. Otherwise, we are sure to lose. And I should also say 20 years ago, um, before China entered the WTO, before we had this mad rush to export technology to them, they were waiting behind. And in 20 years, they caught up to the United States and are surpassing the United States in things where we had 40, 50, 60 to 80 years advantage lead time. That shows you that China has been running faster. Then, so if we give more to them, they're going to continue to run faster. We've got to do a more aggressive approach. So I'm going to, Trevor, I'm going to kind of sidestep the debate a little bit and just kind of build on a little, just kind of like talk about, I think, where the real debate is now. And, we're, and it's interesting to see the China Select Committee just started their hearings today. It's going to be interesting to see where this debate goes. Right now, I think there are kind of two camps. Um, on one is, I think, where the administration is, is technological, what I call the technological decoupling camp, where they really want to see they won't like using the word, they, they, they want to ensure that our highest level of technologies, particularly on emerging tech, is kind of walled off from the PRC. And they see that as being the threats 
that uh, the technologies that will enable the future. Then you have another camp that kind of sees more of that, that listen, the problem isn't just the military, it's the entire PRC system. Dual circulation is a global threat in itself. So therefore, there needs to be more of strategic decoupling. And so there are these two camps, I think, in Washington that view the threat differently. And I think this this kind of comes to sort of the broader sort of, um, I think what the U.S. needs to do as a whole is we have to be able to come to an agreement on exactly what the threat is that we're trying to solve. Is it very? Is it this narrow focus on uh, where we're looking at technological decoupling is really? Uh, and I did borrow that from the CSIS paper, so I, I can't take ownership of that. And and former Ambassador uh, Lighthouser in an op-ed last a couple months ago, he used the word strategic decoupling, so I borrowed that too. None of these terms are mine, but. Um, you, the, the idea here is um, is that there are, we have to start thinking a little bit broadly exactly what threat we're trying to address. Um, and I think one of the things I am I am unclear this administration, the Biden administration, as as well thought out as some of their broader policies are, have have um, really um, been able to articulate the threat of the PRC cohesively to not only domestic audiences. There was a political argument today or just made this point where the Biden administration likes to use the word competition, competition. They don't want to use the word conflict, you know, and, you know, competition almost sounds friendly, like we're in a competition with these guys, you know, but, you know, as Nizak brought out, well, yeah, except they're taking our technology and they're putting it into military systems. That's got a little bit more than competition than unfair. And even Secretary Raimondo, a couple months ago, she came very close to saying economic security, which is pretty much a banned word in this administration, when she started talking about all the things that the Chinese Communist Party is doing to undermine global norms within the economy, right? So um, it seems like she came very close to saying economic security without saying economic security. Uh, so I think we need to, like, as a country, we need to actually be able to identify what a threat, what threat China is. And then once we know that, we got to be able to get out there diplomatically and explain that clearly to our partners and allies, because otherwise we're sending confused messaging. On one hand, we're sending messaging that, well, these export control measures perhaps are protectionist. We're trying to protect our own industry. And, you know, if you combine that with the Inflation Reduction Act and with the CHIPS Act, it, putting them all together, it looks like we're, this, we're just putting up a, uh, these, the, all our export control measures have nothing to do with national security. If we can't explain what the national security threat that comes out of the system, that is the PRC. I don't. I think we're going to have. Some, we're going to struggle in 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 meeting some of the uh, uh, in convincing partners and allies, and even even some domestic audiences of exactly what we're doing on China. And Trevor, since um, Thomas was um, good about going into decoupling, then maybe we could sort of tackle that that first audience question. That was and, exactly where I was going. Because <laughs> I because I wanted to uh, weave weave those points together. Look. I've looked at, and, and I will preface this by saying, I've had a prominent member of Congress ask me, um, so you you want a full decoupling? You don't want strategic decoupling or, you know, high tech decoupling? And, and my answer was, was as follows. So when I, when I was in the government, I did a study on, you know, people seem to be really worried about just talking about decoupling generally. So what are the economic, what's the economic impact of decoupling just overall, right? In the United States, the services, goods, financial flows, all of it, it's 1% of GDP. Let me repeat that, 1% of G US GDP in three to five years. And then after three to five years, our uh, 
our GDP, we get better entangled with our allies. If our allies do it the same, we actually had better GDP growth than if we continued our dependence on China. So that's full decoupling. Again, just 1% of GDP, three to five years, and then we, we grow better. And I think that's even overstated because it's not considering the intangible effects of not having your IP stolen. And then I responded to the question of like, why are you a full decoupler? And I said, look, I don't want to buy Tupperware from China. I don't want to do trade in the non-tech stuff because every dollar, and Michael Pettis, who's an economist, he does beautiful work on this. You've got to read and we've got to read between the lines, but, but he basically illustrates that every dollar you give to the Chinese, it doesn't go to the workers. It doesn't go to the corporations. It pretty much just goes to the CCP. And I don't want to buy Tupperware from China for a dollar because every dollar I give them, it goes to the government who is building up its army or it's it's uh, funding massive genocide of one to three million people. So what kind of country have we become in America or as Americans and our allies, where we're looking at it in terms of we still need to do business with the country without realizing that who is this country and do they stand for the values that America does? And if they don't, then we really need to think move away from this, where does it, where does, do we stand to profit and really think about, do we want this country to profit in any way, in any respect from what we're giving them? Um, so uh, I, I would like these considerations to go into more of the policy debate and move away from tech transfer. Certainly that's an important component, but move past tech transfer to any transfer to China that's enabling these really dangerous capabilities. Thomas, is there anything you want to add or I, if, you, if you're yeah, good, I, I can ask the next audience question. Uh, just really quickly, I think um, obviously, uh, I hear what Nezak is saying, but you know, even one of the challenges to strategic decoupling and decoupling from Tupperware or, or kind of decoupling, it does have actual, that 1% does have impact. And it isn't just pure the 1%, it's a psychological impact. It, 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 it does, and, it, and, and I don't know exactly what the secondary and tertiary consequences of that would be if we would move um, into that position. Um, and I think that's something that, I, I, I and you know, you hear secretary, we, you know, this is why I think the vast majority of the administration you know, they keep on saying, even just under Secretary Estevez today, she, he was very clear about the fact that they are not promoting like economic decoupling from the PRC. So I think I think there is a sensitivity towards sort of those sort of impacts and even the talk around decoupling from the administration perspective. That said, I also think I agree with Nizak in the sense that if we're not willing to open up and even have the conversation, we're not really we're not really going to be able to have a real conversation about the threat, the real threat coming from the system itself. And it's not it's the CCP under she. I mean, this is not a normal. This is even an this is even an anomaly for the Chinese Communist Party at this point to have kind of one man rule with no checks and balances within. The Chinese Communist Party at all. I mean, we're just in a different territory here, um, and so I think uh, there's there is room for debate, and I am hopeful that the China Select Committee has that gives that opportunity to have some of these views kind of aired. And looking forward to hearing 
smarter people than me um, speak to some of these 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 the, the impacts and, and these ideas. Let me remind yeah. for the audience real quickly that um, 20 years ago, before China's entry, 20, slightly over 20 years ago, before China's entry to the WTO, we didn't really have that much um, sort of dependence on China. And so we lived in a world where you can actually go and get stuff. And we had industries that weren't completely beholden to China and would freak out every time we try to do something because they would say, oh, my gosh, my industry is going to collapse. So, again, 20 year, years ago wasn't that long ago. We should really, to, to Thomas's clever point, we should be having these conversations so that we can start planning for what other options we have. Because long term, having those relationships away from China and in South America and in um, and in Mexico and in Canada and Europe, we, it stands to go far better in terms of our mutual prosperity and also preventing our allies and those countries from economic collapse, giving rise to corrupt governments. The entire ecosystem does better, which is to Thomas's point, not that the rest that I want to put words in Thomas's mouth, but having those conversations so we can solve these critical problems. But to stay away from it and say, I don't want to move all our supply chains out of China, just some of them ignores the other problems that we're going to have to solve because they're still funding dangerous capabilities that are that's to our detriment. So for the second audience question, I'm going to rephrase a little bit. It asks why the PRC didn't respond more aggressively to the aftermath of these export controls. I'm just going to change that. Not, not just to why didn't they respond, but also how, what are they trying to do domestically to respond internally to overcome the impact of these export controls on their industry? And what is that impact even going to be? So um, maybe I can just kind of take this one. I think one of the things that we became aware of, and I think there's still a lot of dependency uh, that the PRC, the Chinese Communist Party has specifically. I like, I use the word Chinese Communist Party here. And I'm very, and I use this and a lot, I get a lot of my, uh, my friends say, why do you use Chinese Communist Party? Why do you use not just say China? It's because it really is the Chinese Communist Party. It's not the Chinese people. It is, it, it is the party and they are directing. So I, I use that deliberately, but the Chinese Communist Party here they're, they know that they are still very much dependent on U.S. companies. They don't want to spook U.S. companies from leaving um, leaving the country. I mean, that's 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 part of the problem, you know. And they 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 understand that dependency. They also know that, and they hope, I believe, um, and this is what I what I've come to understand is that they're uh, they kind of hope that that their best advocates in the United States are are U.S. companies that are functioning within. The PRC. So that's why you don't see tit for tat. That said, um, there's a couple developments in 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 the in the, that the Chinese Communist Party has done that I think is worth noting. Number two, there's this. Uh, I'm sure everyone has followed this. Is is they have been kind of like thinking about and developing export control measures on certain kind of solar panel technology. Um, this is a this is a uh, a choke point. For the United States, um, we a lot of people don't realize that we depend awful lot on China for a lot of the clean tech in Chinese companies um, for for a lot of the clean tech um, technologies. And so, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is considering export control measures here that's something that to pay attention to. The second thing is, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the Chinese have a tool called the Unreliable Entities List. It has never been used. 
um, I believe it was a week ago or a couple weeks ago, a couple of U.S. companies were added to that. Now, um, these companies, it's, it's, it's questionable how much um, uh, how much trade or how much this impacts those companies, but um, or if they were if they were just token and symbolic. But the fact that the Chinese Communist Party was willing to actually now start using the list says it's like any other bureaucracy, just like the entity list, just like anything else, it makes it easier the second time, the third time, because you know it gets into the, the rotation of bureaucratic tools and policy tools. So um, it's something that is something to keep an eye out on and, and to start and, and start seeing it what, what the Chinese Communist Party does in reaction to some to some of these measures. Oh, and not to mention, um, they did file a complaint um, in the World Trade Organization uh, against the the, the 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 October seventh rules. And if you look at the arguments, they are very they, they're kind of in line with a lot of what I think European allies are, are and a lot of even our closest allies how they view them. Um, the, the combination of like the Chips Act, Inflation Reduction Act, combined with it, combined with these extra measures, you, looks like less national security, more protectionism. And so um, I think I think you're seeing the Chinese Communist Party do things diplomatically. You see them start messing around and playing with uh, and start maybe pulling the trigger on some of their their own domestic uh, controls. And so we'll see if there's any more to come. And then I'll just add a few quick points. I think uh, zero COVID policy was sort of a test case for China. How does the world react for with less supply chains from China? And it saw that it was very effective. Um, China has, it's a really good question. Um, China that, that was posed by the audience. Um, China has already started to severely restrict access to some of the strategic materials that we need to make semiconductors, the, the machine, the machinery to make, uh, you know, drilling equipment to make military supplies. When we're seeing major spikes in the prices in, in the market there. And then, you know, find, fundamentally, remember when the world starts turning on China, it, it kind of redoes its charm offensive, right? Um, which is what it's doing now. That should signal to us that it's kind of sort of lying in wait. It wants to complete its tech transfer, its acquisition to build its strength. So then it can really do something dramatic. If we start pulling supply chains back right now, it doesn't fit within China's grand strategy of, you know, taking Taiwan and taking more regions, et cetera. So it's very much in their interest to keep acquiring technology, just stay quiet, play the long game. And once you're fully equipped with what you need, that's when you go big. And this comes from 20 plus years of observing China and trade from the time that China started um, really trading with the, with the global ecosystem by entry into the WTO. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you to everyone that joined us. And this was a great panel. It was great to be able to moderate this and I'll turn it back over to Jack. Thanks a lot, Trevor. Um, and absolutely, of course, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank both of our panelists for their valuable time and expertise today on this issue. And of course, thank you to our audience for joining us and participating. As always, keep an eye on our website for upcoming events. We have another webinar later today about these student loans cases. Um, and we do welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. Uh, that is all for today. Thank you for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, 
please visit our website at fedsoc.org.